everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Coastal Crimes. I'm Jen, your host, and this podcast is a true crime podcast where I delve into the cases and look into the dark side of everyone's favorite tropical vacation spots. Now, before I get into our first case, I just wanted to give you guys a little bit about myself. Um, I'm a huge true crime fan. I listen to so many different podcasts and, you know, watch the documentaries and the TV shows and everything. And what I noticed um, is that the cases that are most often talked about are ones that happen in the Midwest or in landlocked areas. And the cases that are least talked about, I think, are the ones that happen in like those coastal tropical areas. So I wanted to create this podcast and talk about those cases and hopefully some ones that you guys haven't heard before, um, and definitely ones that I haven't heard before. So I also thought it would be kind of cool to start off each episode with some fun facts about the area that I'll be talking about in my case. All right, let's get to it. I thought it would be kind of cool to start off this podcast with a case that happened very close to where I live right now. I'm not going to call it my hometown because I didn't grow up here, but I did grow up very close to here. I grew up on an island called Kauai, um, and that's about a 20-minute plane ride from where I'm at right now, which is Kailua, Hawaii. And our case takes place in Honolulu, Hawaii, which is one of the most popular travel destinations, I feel like, almost in the world. We have visitors coming from everywhere. But aside from all of the visitors um, that come from all over the world, Honolulu is the only city in the entire United States that's home to a real royal palace. This palace is called Iolani Palace, and it is located right in downtown Honolulu. Before the Hawaiian monarchy was overthrown in 1893, Iolani Palace was home to King Kalakaua and Queen Liliuokalani. And after the coup d'etat, the palace was used as a government building until it was restored and opened to the public in 1978. Today, you can go visit it. Now, you're probably wondering about me mentioning the coup d'etat. Now, that's right. There was a coup d'etat in Hawaii. In 1893, an anti-monarchy group, mostly headed up by United States citizens, overthrew the government with the underlying dream of being annexed by the United States. Once that happened, Honolulu gained two things that are still major players today. Hotels and resorts. And a U.S. military presence. Also, I thought was kind of interesting was that the Iolani Palace got electric lighting a whopping four years before the White House did. And you might think of all the Hawaiian islands as peaceful paradises where you can just get away from all the hassles of modern city life. But Honolulu has some of the worst traffic in the country. A Forbes listing of cities with the worst traffic puts Honolulu at number two, with 60 hours of time wasted in traffic per person per year. I'm so sorry. More apologies to my fellow Oahu friends for bringing up this fact because I know it is a touchy subject. Aside from the Iolani Palace, Honolulu has more than 33 Buddhist temples. And while English and Hawaiian are the official languages of Hawaii, you'll often hear people speaking something entirely different from both. 
even on television or in advertising. This less official language of Hawaii is Hawaiian pidgin, a Creole language that developed out of immigrants from China, Japan, the Philippines, Portugal, and other countries all trying to communicate with each other in the 19th century. You can pick up a copy of the Jesus book, which is the Bible in Hawaiian pidgin, for a good laugh. Moving right along to the last few of my fun facts. Waikiki Beach brings in more than 70,000 tourists every single day. Now, I am recording this in a pandemic, but we are still getting visitors, so I'm pretty sure that this fact is still true. If not true, we are very close to it. If you've ever wondered what Honolulu actually means in English, it translates to sheltered bay. I'm not exactly sure why, so don't ask me, but that's what it means. And last but certainly not least, because he is known throughout all of our islands as one of the most famous guys from Hawaii and in Hawaii, is Duke Kahanamoku. Now, Duke Kahanamoku is widely credited with taking surfing from a little-known Hawaiian pastime to an internationally known sport. He grew up in and around Waikiki, learning to surf and swim at Waikiki Beach. And that's also where one of our most famous restaurants, Duke's, got its name. I really hope you enjoyed those fun facts. Um, I know I found a lot of them interesting. Even though I knew a little bit about some of them, I still didn't know all of them. Now, let's get straight to the case. Today, I will be telling you about the Xerox murders. Um, It was a huge case back in the 90s, um, an incident of mass murders, and it also led to a bunch of gun laws and just a lot of talk and debate about gun laws in Hawaii. There are those who believe they are immune from workplace homicide, thinking that it could never happen at their place of employment or in their particular field of work. But Occupational homicide is a worldwide phenomenon that has no boundaries, can target anyone regardless of their socioeconomic status, race, gender, job position, geography, or field of work. Therefore, no one anywhere is immune from occupational murder, although there are those who are less at risk than others based on variables such as job location, type, time in which they work, all of those. For example, There is less risk for a person to fall victim to occupational homicide that works in a white-collar position in a suburban corporate office from 9 to 5, as opposed to a convenience store clerk working in the late evening in a bad neighborhood, or, like me, a podcaster working from home whenever she can. However, sometimes in the least likely places, the unexpected could transpire. And this is where our story begins. We will start with the 911 call. I'm at uh, the line. Okay. This is the ambulance. How can I help you? Hey, can I get an ambulance? And please, to 1200 North Nimitz Highway, Xerox Corp. What's wrong? Somebody, somebody's got a gun. Has been shooting people up in the building. Okay, the, inside the building? Yeah, inside the building. Okay. And on. you need the cops for the now. Okay. You're calling from Pike Street? Yeah, I'm calling from an office on the side someplace. Okay, 1200 North Limit. Right. Okay. Okay, hang on now. Okay. Yeah. Holy. Okay, 
in the morning, Byron Koji Uyasugi, a service technician working at Xerox, opened fire inside the building with a semi-automatic pistol, killing his supervisor and six co-workers, and fired in the direction of another co-worker who fled the building. The eighth person escaped without injury. No one ever expected such large-scale violence in a state known to have the lowest murder rate in the nation or in a company that had never experienced a workplace homicide in its 50-year history. But it did occur, and the horrific incident became known as Hawaii's largest mass murder case and the worst mass shooting Hawaii has ever seen in a state with the least amount of gun violence in the country. Quote, he aimed the gun directly at Ron Kawame's head and pulled the trigger. Jason Balatico, who witnessed the shooting, charged toward Byron in an effort to wrestle the gun away, but Byron fired a hail of shots at him, downing him with five shots. Randall Shin, who was sitting next to Ron in the computer room, saw the explosion of blood from Ron and went into shock. Byron ignored Randall and instead walked down the hallway to the conference room, where he fired multiple bullets into his supervisor, Melvin Lee, and four other co-workers, Ronald Kataoka, Peter Mark, John Sakamoto, and Ford Kanahira. Byron allegedly turned a wounded John to face upward and fired into him again as John's eyes remained open. He had to reload to kill Ford. End quote from Peter Carlyle, the prosecuting attorney. The drama spanned the city. Near the busy working harbor a few miles from the tourist district of Waikiki, the two-story brick Xerox building was surrounded by police and gaped at by stunned locals. Earl Simao was across the street having his usual morning coffee. He glanced into the Xerox parking lot and saw a man dressed in casual clothes get into a green company van and drive off. That man was Byron Uyasugi. He looked perfectly calm, Simao said, shaking his head. I'm still trying to sort it through. His father, Byron's father, Hiro Uyasugi, said he saw his son that morning, and there was no indication that anything was wrong. Quote, he must have got fired. I don't know. He never said anything this morning. End quote. Hiro Uyasugi said and asked if he planned to join in the effort to bring his son in, the elderly man looked stricken and said, I'm going to bring him another gun so he can shoot himself. After the shooting, Uyasugi fled in a company van, and by mid-morning, he was found sitting in the van near the Hawaii Nature Center in Makiki, above downtown Honolulu. 
he held a standoff with police that lasted for five hours, during which he brandished a pistol, read magazines, and smoked cigarettes. Adding to the tension of the standoff, the Hawaii Nature Center was hosting 35 local school children who were trapped inside without food or water. When the action moved north to the base of Tantalus Mountain, residents and gawkers congregated behind police lines. Police rushed to the area. The hostage hostage crisis negotiation team was called. When we got there, it was scripted off what we do, said retired Honolulu Police Department officer Cheryl Sunia. It was very limited. There had been a shooting, but we didn't know how many. He lived with his father, had a brother, a mother who died of cancer. He was closer to his mother. We had to make a decision. Who's going to talk to him? The choice was to use a woman. Sunia herself was chosen to get Byron to surrender. I think every time you negotiate, you don't know what to expect. It's a scary feeling. What if you say the wrong thing? Not a lot of facts were given to us. You just gotta sink into the role, I guess, she said. She was up on the hillside, sitting in the bushes. He was sitting in his car. The police threw a phone in Byron's direction, and he got out of the van to retrieve it. It wasn't your normal negotiation. It wasn't someone on drugs, somebody who's been using drugs, and totally insane. Sunia spent the next few hours negotiating. He was contemplating suicide, she said. He knew the meeting was about him that day, she recalled. He felt people were going to let him go. It was kind of that hopelessness kind of thing. I don't know if he had planned it. He just felt he had no other choice in his mind. He felt they were going to put him on a new machine. He wasn't going to be able to handle it. They were going to fire him, set him up to fail. Helplessness and anger, people out to get him. That, to him, was real. He was drinking water. Sunia was up in the bushes, sitting in dirt, centipedes, and cockroaches all around her. She said, Wow, I could really go for a bottle of water. And then he poured out his water. So now, they both didn't have water. So she said, I'm hot and tired. What if I bought you a soda? What's your favorite? Then he said, I don't have one. She replied, everyone has a favorite soda. He then told Sunia it was Pepsi. So she told him, let's sit down. I'll buy you a Pepsi if you open the door and come out. Then Byron surrendered to police at around 3 p.m. after about five hours of negotiating. At the scene of the shooting, passersby draped lays over a wall at the entrance. You would never think it would happen, you know, at your workplace, an employee said that day. I mean, you hear it all around, but, you know, this is too close. Way too close. Personally, I think this is the largest number of victims in a single murder case, a police officer said. Sean Pagay, a self-employed landscaper, echoed the stunned reaction of Islanders. You'd think this might happen on the mainland, but not in Hawaii, he said. This island is so small and community-based, there's still a sense of ohana. Ohana is the Hawaiian word for family. I was shocked, said Jennifer Davis. 
a nanny who lives near where Byron held police at bay. Hawaii always seems to have been so isolated from what happens on the mainland, like the Columbine massacre or any of the crazy people who commit mass murder. I've always felt like I'm glad I'm away from that. Vernon Wong, the president of the Hawaii Goldfish and Carp Association, of which Byron was a member, recalled his friend of three years as a pretty quiet person, but not antisocial. He marveled at Byron's ability to care for nearly 2,000 fish, many of them in four 300-gallon plastic tanks in his backyard. Candace Kelsey, a legislative clerk in the research office of the House Minority and the Hawaii Legislature, often called Byron to repair the overworked copier that served the research requests of that chamber's 12 Republicans. We had a very difficult copier to work with, she said, and he even had a little sense of humor about it and would take the time to explain to me the little things that went wrong. Sometimes I'd call him every day. He was in no way hot-tempered and showed no signs of anger, but we never really talked on a personal level. Level. She said she had last seen Byron about two months prior because the copier had not been busy during the legislature's recess. She actually learned of the shootings while she was making copies and her husband phoned to tell her. At first, she thought it was a joke. Then, when I finally realized it was him, I guess I broke down a little, she said. You can't imagine that you know somebody who could do something like that. Everyone is searching for answers but none of us really have them. Hawaii has one of the nation's strictest gun laws. At the time, in order to obtain a firearms permit, proof must be provided that the buyer has passed a firearms safety course. There was also a 14-day waiting period and a background check. The murders occurred in a general atmosphere of uncertainty and paranoia. Three years after the Sand Island hostage crisis, six months after the Columbine shooting, and two months away from the Y2K scare. In retrospect, the shooting can easily be seen as a singularly tragic event, but that was not evident at the time. As for the victims, I want to give you something about them and their life to help connect the two so you will ultimately understand exactly who was there and why they were there. Now, I couldn't gather too much information because the families were very like close-lipped, but here's what I could get. Melvin Lee, 58 years old, Waipahu High School, worked at, went to the Electronics Institute of Hawaii, married for 18 years, had two sons and a daughter, worked at Xerox for 32 years. He was Byron's boss, a manager with a big heart, soft-spoken, non-confrontational. Ford Kanahira, 41 years old, Castle High School, also went to the Electronics Institute of Hawaii. He had been married for 18 years. He had a son. He had been with Xerox for 19 years. He married basically his high school sweetheart. He was 17. She was 14 when they met. They dated for five years. They were married for a quarter of a century of their lives. They had been virtually inseparable until they had a child, and then the three of them were inseparable. He was known as cheerful, childlike, and innocent. Happy-go-lucky. Ron Kataoka, 50 years old, Lelehua High School, 
he learned his electronic trade at Honolulu Community College and also married his high school sweetheart. They were married for 25 years. He and his wife also worked for Xerox. Her name is Lynn. They had an 11-year-old daughter who played basketball with him in the driveway. He had been with Xerox for 27 years. When the National Guard was called up from Hawaii to service in Vietnam, Ronnie was a part of the National Guard, and he served. He was a Vietnam veteran. He carried a grenade launcher while he was in Vietnam. And he was a nice guy, upbeat, and never raised his voice. Peter Mark, 46 years old, Kaimuki High School, went to the Electronics Institute of Hawaii, married for 16 years, two sons, was at Xerox for 19 years. He loved everything to do with the ocean. He loved surfing until he got married with two kids, and then surfing took sort of a backseat to his love of the ocean. He was buried at sea within sight of Diamond Head. John Sakamoto, 36 years old, an easy person to remember. Kalani High School, went to the Electronics Institute of Hawaii, married for seven years, had a son and a daughter, and he worked at Xerox for 10 years. Easy to remember because he's the fisherman. Hundreds of pictures of this man with the fish that he caught when he, before he joined Xerox. He helped make his own boat, and every weekend, Saturday and Sunday, every vacation, it was fishing, fishing, fishing. Again, that took a backseat after his son and daughter. It was less frequently after they were born, but this was somebody who was on the sea and was actually able to make a living, supplement his income, because of his effectiveness as a fisherman in a boat that he helped to build. Christopher Jason Balatico, 33 years old, Farrington High School graduate, Healds Institute of Technology, married for 10 years, had a son and a daughter, that same day, he had made his eighth year at Xerox. What people remembered about Jason was that he was a man who was fast and quick at everything he did. He was very fast to smile, sort of a prankster. One of his favorite tricks was super gluing a penny on the floor. Somebody would try to pick it up for good luck and spend a lot of time trying to pick the penny off the floor. He was handsome, very popular in school and was the winter prom court junior escort. Ron Kawamai, 54 years old, nicknamed the politician and loved karaoke. Kaimuki High School, previously married, had a son, worked at Xerox for 30 years. He loved socializing and he loved people. Recently, he had lost his 75-year-old father to a stroke. But he loved his job, and he liked playing golf. And unfortunately, that's about it that I could get off of our victims. And now I'd like to talk about Byron, the shooter. Born in Honolulu in 1959, Byron grew up in the Nu'uanu neighborhood of Oahu. Little is known about Byron's childhood, except that when he was young, he was fascinated with guns. While attending Roosevelt High School, Byron was a member of the school's Army JROTC chapter and the school's rifle team. Classmates remembered him as a quiet student who never got into trouble. He raised koi and goldfish in homemade tanks and built fine furniture by hand. 
To many, he was considered good-natured, quiet, and somewhat withdrawn, which may explain why, at 44, he remained unmarried. According to his brother Dennis, Byron crashed their father's car and hit his head on the windshield shortly after graduating high school in 1977, and he was never the same afterwards. Some neighbors described him as reclusive. Lorraine Howell lived for 54 years in the sedate Laimi neighborhood nestled in the foothills of the same mountains where Byron fled after the shootings. Howell said Byron lived quietly with his brother and father, whom she described as a good man. The family home on Easy Street was well kept except for a rusted out Ford Mustang parked on the front lawn, which is pretty common for Hawaii. Laundry flapped on a clothesline in the backyard, near tanks of goldfish. He was a very quiet, nice boy, said Dorothy Kamita, who had lived across the street from the Uyasugi family in the Nu'uanu Valley neighborhood for more than 30 years. Whatever he did, he did it well. He made beautiful furniture. When I needed help, he always came over. I never saw a mad face. He was always smiling. David J. Yuen, a classmate at Roosevelt, said he remembered Byron as quiet and not part of the school's in-crowd. I know who he was, but I didn't know him, Yuen said. Byron had been employed by Xerox as a technician since 1984. Among his hobbies, he was raising and breeding goldfish and koi, which he would sell to local pet stores. He had an extensive collection of firearms. At the time of the murders, he had as many as 25 guns registered in his name, dating all the way back to 1982. Police also took 11 handguns, 5 rifles, and 2 shotguns from Byron's father. According to testimony to another work group, Byron began making unfounded accusations of harassment and product tampering against fellow repairmen. They had difficulty dealing with him. Former co-workers who knew him reported the other members of his team allegedly ostracized him, making him feel isolated and withdrawn. Byron reportedly made threats against other co-workers' lives. An ABC News article entitled No Motive in Hawaii reported that Byron had such a problem with his temper that he was arrested in 1993 for kicking in an elevator door and threatening his supervisor. The charges were later dropped but Byron was ordered to seek psychological help to gain more control of his behavior. Byron was arrested for third-degree criminal property damage. Co-workers told Dr. Michael Wellner, chairman of the forensic panel and the forensic psychiatrist who interviewed Byron prior to the, the trial as early as 1995, Byron was openly talking of carrying out a mass shooting at the workplace where he was to be fired. He complained that his co-workers were engaging in patterns of harassment, backstabbing behavior, and spreading of rumors. In the period leading up to the shootings, Xerox management had become increasingly committed to phasing out the type of photocopier that Byron serviced. He resisted learning the replacement machine, fearing that he could not keep up with its technical demands. After working around his refusal to train on the new machine, Byron's manager insisted on November 1st, 1999, that he would begin training the next day. 
In his interview with Dr. Wellner, Byron said he had believed that if he refused to take the training, management would fire him. He told Dr. Wellner, I decided to give them a reason to fire me. Deputy Prosecutor Kevin Sakata argued against setting bail before the trial began. A defendant charged with a serious crime punishable by life imprisonment with no possibility of parole is presumed to be a flight risk. Also, given the charges and allegations against Byron contained in the court documents and confidential jury transcripts, there is nothing the courts can do to prevent harm to the rest of the community if he is released, Takata said. Rodney Ching, one of Byron's lawyers, argues against bail revocation, saying Byron has no criminal felony record, has ties to the community, and was gainfully employed, and could still very well be. Even though the Xerox Corp terminated Byron's employment following his arraignment the week before, Given the circumstances, $7 million is already the same as no bail, Ching argued. The $7 million, which was earlier reviewed and approved by the court, is sufficient to ensure Byron's appearance in court. Since the defense failed to rebut the state's contention that a serious flight risk exists and cannot ensure that Byron would appear, Circuit Judge Richard Perkins revoked bail for Byron and ordered him held without bail, saying that he presents a flight risk and a danger to the community. Based on state law, bail can be denied when someone has been charged with a serious crime, defined by statute as including first-degree murder or attempted murder. Byron's trial began on May 15, 2000, and lasted a month. He was charged with one count of murder in the first degree, seven counts of murder in the second degree, and one count of attempted murder in the second degree. Prior to the close of the trial, counts two through eight were merged into the first-degree murder charge. An employee whose life was spared, a son and surviving spouses of the seven victims, were expected to take the stand in the murder trial. Randall Shin, who escaped death, and Reed Kawamai, son of Ron Kawamai, are included in a list of more than 11 witnesses expected to be called by the state. Byron had the opportunity to kill Randall, but chose not to. None of the spouses of the victims were in court. The families declined requests to be interviewed by the press, asking that the media respect their privacy. The state's case, which was, he knew what he was doing. Technically adequate, lacked people skills, short-fused, resistant to training, unpopular with coworkers. Overall, a disgruntled problem employee is how the state described copy machine repairman Byron Uyasugi, charged in Hawaii's worst multiple slaying in that time. But although he suffers from a delusional disorder, Byron knew right from wrong and was capable of controlling his actions when he opened fire on a select group of co-workers, said city prosecutor Peter Carlisle. The state portrayed Byron as a methodical killer who knew what he was doing when he spared some co-workers, but pumped 25 shots into seven others, even needing to reload his gun. He decided who would die, who would live, when and where they would die, and how they would die, Carlisle said. Xerox was closing in on Brian, or sorry, Byron, or so he believed, and he needed to strike back. 
I had to do what I had to do to make a point, he told a police negotiator as police attempted to get him to surrender later that day. His co-workers had been messing with him, making him look bad. The company was conspiring to terminate him. Federal agents were spying on him, planting bugs at his home and in his car, he told doctors. He chose November 2nd, 1999, because he knew the people he was targeting would be at a meeting that morning, Carlisle said. The prosecution called six of the wives of the victims to testify, and the son of the seventh victim. To Melvin's wife, the prosecution asked if they had children, which they did. He asked how many. They had three. And then he asked what Mel's favorite pastime was, and his wife replied, golfing. The second witness was asked whether the victim, prior to marriage, enjoyed particular activities and where the victim was buried. Defense counsel then objected to this, but was overruled by the judge. The third witness was asked about the victim's fishing business and the boat he built. The fourth was asked what hobbies his father enjoyed. The fifth was asked why she and her husband had returned to Hawaii, and she stated that we didn't want to deny our children knowing their parents, God, grandparents, their cousins, their aunties, and uncles. This witness was also asked about the pranks the victim liked to play on others, the victim's athletic prowess, and the names and ages of their children. Defense counsel cross-examined each of these witnesses, asking specific questions in order to confirm or deny whether Byron's beliefs about each of the victims were delusional. For example, Byron was apparently acting under the delusion that one of his co-workers was an FBI agent. Defense counsel asked one of the wives if her husband worked for the FBI and whether he had ever been a federal agent. Of the remaining witnesses, defense counsel asked questions to establish whether any of the victims had discussed Byron with them or if they were aware of the problems Byron was having at work. I wasn't able to find the full transcripts with their answers, so I'm not sure if they were aware. The prosecution then called Charles Davis, a forensic firearm and tool mark examiner, to testify regarding the 24 guns owned by Byron though not used in the shooting, and the one gun used in the shooting. Davis testified that the prosecution requested that he identify, classify, and evaluate the weapons. He identified four types of weapons and explained the differences among them. During this testimony, the prosecution offered a picture of the guns into evidence, which the circuit court received. The picture was an 8.5 by 11 inch document containing a picture of each of the 24 guns. The prosecution then asked Davis to identify every weapon and describe its characteristics. Davis extensively discussed the Glock 17, its bullet capacity, and reloading time. Davis concluded his testimony by explaining what a jacketed hollow point bullet is, how this type of bullet functions, and the type of damage to the human body such a bullet will inflict. So naturally, I looked on ammo.com and a jacketed hollow point is designed to expand rapidly when hitting its target, which increases the effectiveness of the bullet and decreases the chances of overpenetration. The jacket is the number one reason this type of bullet is chosen over traditional hollow points. 
The main advantage of a jacketed bullet is easier feeding in semi-auto pistols. Another advantage is less lead fouling in your barrel. If you shoot a good amount of ammo through any weapon, this can lead to performance issues as well as wear and tear. The hollow point ammunition is designed to expand when it strikes a target to cause extra damage and also to prevent overpenetration issues. This is perfect for home defense, concealed carry, and hunting. You can buy this type of bullet in a huge variety of shapes and styles. Each manufacturer has special lines for hunting, long-range shooting, target practice, or defense. You can usually find pistol and rifle varieties, making this and other hollow points very versatile. Now for the defense's case. His delusions compelled him to kill. Defense attorney Rodney Ching did not dispute his client committed the seven killings, but he said Byron Uyasugi was suffering from a serious delusional disorder that affected his ability to tell right from wrong. He lacked substantial capacity to understand the wrongfulness of his actions, Ching said. He described Byron's mental illness as serious, long-standing, and deeply ingrained. At home, Byron was tormented by a strange black shadow that poked him constantly. To stop the poking, which caused him physical pain, Byron picked up a knife or a screwdriver to poke back at the shadow. At work, Byron believed other employees were spying on him, sabotaging his work and conspiring against him, Ching said. Byron also believed one of his colleagues was stealing his goldfish and mutilating them. Byron's distorted thinking was known to his Xerox supervisors beginning in 1992. Xerox forced Byron to undergo psychiatric evaluation treatment in 1993 after he kicked in an elevator door, Ching said. Doctors at Castle and Kaiser Hospitals diagnosed him with paranoia and delusional disorders. His delusion continued and it expanded, and it got worse and worse and worse, Ching said. And by the time of the killings, the line between reality and delusion was blurred. Byron pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity and claimed that he felt like an outcast at work and that he feared his colleagues were conspiring to have him fired. Two doctors testified for the defense that he was insane, citing the delusions about how others were tampering with his fish. Lead prosecution experts witness Dr. Harold Hall testified that Byron fulfilled the criteria for a diagnosis of schizophrenia, but he did not meet the criteria for either insanity or extreme emotion or mental disturbance. Dr. Wellner, the doctor that interviewed Byron after the shooting, testified for the prosecution that although Byron was, in his opinion, a schizophrenic, he carried out the shooting because he was angry that he would be fired for insubordination, and that his own account of concealment before the crime demonstrated that he knew what he had done was wrong. On June 13, 2000, the jury rejected the insanity defense, finding Byron guilty on count one for the seven murders and count nine for the attempted murder. It took them less than 90 minutes. Byron showed no emotion as verdicts were read for first-degree murder and second-degree attempted murder. On August 8, 2000, Judge Marie N. Milks sentenced Byron to life without the possibility of parole for count one and life with the possibility of parole on count nine, with the sentences to run consecutively. 
The court also ordered Byron to pay $500 in restitution and $70,000 to the Crime Victim Compensation Fund. Hawaii does not have the death penalty. The parole board later ordered Byron to serve a minimum term of 235 years in prison, the longest ever ordered for a Hawaii inmate. There is no acceptable reason to explain why this happened, Xerox spokesman Terry Dillman told the Associated Press. It's shattered seven families, and it's forever changed in a very profound way, a very special place in the world. Prosecutor Carlisle said the conviction was cold comfort to Byron's countless victims, the wives and mothers, fathers and brothers, and the children and grandchildren who lost so much on November 2nd, 1999. I'm obviously pleased that we got that verdict, but it's profoundly inadequate to address how much we've lost, he said. One of the jurors, Claire Nakayama Dotson, said Byron seemed so quiet and unassuming. He just talked very calmly. There was no expression, she said. But as the trial went on, it was clear Byron not only had another side, but knew the difference between right and wrong. He knew about the Bible and the Ten Commandments. That was the clincher, she said. Byron appealed his convictions. In 2002, the state of Hawaii Supreme Court upheld Byron's conviction. Then again, in 2004, Byron was considering fighting his conviction based on Rule 40, inadequate representation by his lawyers in his first trial. In 2005, Xerox and the hospital that examined Byron settled a civil lawsuit brought by the families of the shooting victims. They believed that both parties had failed to take preventative action based on what they said were clear signs of Byron's mental instability. And as of October 10th, 2017, I know it's a long time ago, but I literally could not find anything after that day. Byron was incarcerated at the Saguaro Correctional Center in Eloy, Arizona. The killings were the latest in a numbing series of multiple shootings that had erupted at offices, schools, and churches around the country. That the shootings occurred in Hawaii, which tends to think of itself as immune from many of the mainland's social ills, was a rude reminder that even here, violence can find a foothold. Mayor Jeremy Harris gave a statement from the scene of the shootings that morning. This is a tragedy, Harris said. We live in the safest city in the United States. A mass murder like this is a shock to everybody. It shows this violence permeates in the entire culture. Harris said there were 17 homicides in this city of 365,000 people the year before, and there were only seven elsewhere in the state. Xerox vacated the premises of 1200 North Nimitz Highway after the shooting. The facility was vacant until 2004, when the producers of the TV show Lost built a soundstage there to film indoor scenes. Dal Tile currently leases the property from the Weinberg Foundation to use as its tile and natural stone showroom. Following this crazy, sad mass shooting, there was a lot of controversy about the gun laws and whether they should just be taken off the streets altogether. The Honolulu Advertiser wrote a short piece about the use of guns on November 19, 1999. The title was Modern Weapons Must Be a Campaign Issue. The kid had it right. Guns stink. 
Anyone who's not mentally ill knows that. Taken from the advertiser. Weapons like that used in the Xerox murders are too powerful for non-professional use. Weapons in existence at the time Americans were guaranteed the right to bear arms took minutes to load. There is no way a disturbed individual could have ended seven decent lives in seconds with an 18th century rifle. At some point, Americans must make control of murderous modern weapons a major campaign issue. It's just a matter of time before some angry, repressed person goes on a rampage and ends more innocent lives, said Nancy P. Moss. A massive and complicated civil court case was filed by relatives of the seven victims against Byron, Xerox Corp., and healthcare institutions and mental health experts who evaluated and treated Byron before the slayings. Xerox had already paid the relatives more than $7 million that included workers' compensation, insurance, and other payments, according to company letters sent to the families. The governor at that time, Ben Cayetano, who owned several guns, said he's open to meaningful changes to Hawaii's strict gun laws and wouldn't block a ban on the private ownership of handguns if that's what the people wanted. If the people want to ban guns... It's not something I'll sit down in front of a bulldozer for. It's something I can take or leave, he said. Despite the gun restrictions in Hawaii, there are still plenty of guns here. In 2018, the state attorney general's office estimated there were 2 million privately owned firearms for a population of 1.4 million. But gun violence is less of a problem than in other states. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Hawaii has the lowest rate of gun violence in the nation, with 2.5 deaths per 100,000 residents. Alaska has the highest rate of gun deaths, 10 times more than Hawaii. The national average, which includes murders and suicides, is five times greater than for Hawaii. Rhode Island beat Hawaii in 2016 and 2015. Hawaii's strict gun laws have led to some groups to sue. You can see how there's this correlation, said Lori Kutaleta, managing director of the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, an advocacy organization. Her organization's analysis shows that stronger laws lead to lower gun death rates. The center ranks Hawaii as having the seventh best gun laws out of the 50 states and a grade of A- minus on its scorecard in 2019. More than half of the states had enough. Hawaii is such a strong state, she said. Hawaii regulates ammunition and restricts open carry, which prompted a federal lawsuit by local gun owners. That hasn't stopped state lawmakers from enacting new gun laws. In 2019, Governor David Ige signed Act 150, a so-called red flag law, which allows courts to order the seizure of privately owned guns if a family member reports the owner may harm himself or others. 16 other states, including California, Connecticut, and Florida, and Washington, D.C., have passed similar laws. State Senator Carl Rhodes, who sponsored the Hawaii bill, said it's meant to address the issue of people who buy their guns legally, but go through some sort of breakdown. It's not foolproof, but it does stack the odds against a potential mass shooter. Factors that can be considered by the court include reckless or illegal use or display of a firearm, acts of violence or threats, 
abuse of drugs or alcohol, and violence of protective orders. Police would collect the firearms at the time the orders were served on the gun owners. That law took effect January 1st, 2020. Or, as I say, one of the worst years in America. (laughs) The organization Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, which lobbied Hawaii lawmakers in 2019 to pass the legislation, described red flag laws as part of a national sea change on gun safety. But Harvey Gerwig, president of the Hawaii Rifle Association, said he finds these extreme risk protection orders problematic. He said the new law is plainly unconstitutional and that there is no evidence red flag laws have helped prevent mass shootings. His organization tried to defeat the bill. I understand with what's been going on with all the crazy people shooting people that there's a peaked interest in red flag laws, he said. But the fact is that most of these laws get abused. The law's mechanism is very similar to how offenders in domestic violence incidents are barred by protective orders from accessing firearms. A petitioner can file for a one-year protective order preventing someone from having a firearm. A hearing must be scheduled within 14 days. But in in certain extreme cases, a petitioner can file for an order without notice to the respondent. The law allows the court to hold a hearing with the gun owner president, present <laughs> where the judge can decide to temporarily confiscate the gun owner's weapons. The gun owner can then demand a hearing to determine whether the firearm seizure was warranted. In the meantime, they have confiscated your property, stripped you of your rights with no due process whatsoever, said Gerwig. Moms Demand Action, meanwhile, showed that Indiana and Connecticut saw significant decreases in firearm suicides after passing extreme risk laws. Governor Ige said he is proud that Hawaii has some of the most rigorous gun laws in the nation, and I am proud that Hawaii has a commitment to safety in our community. I think all of us in our community believe that one tragic event is one too many. And as we've seen gun violence across the country happening over and over again in instances of schools being involved, it's very, very heart-wrenching, Ige said moments before he signed the bill. I think it's common sense to allow us to temporarily prevent these individuals from having access to firearms and ammunition. It does not take away their basic right to own a gun, but it down on behalf of our community allows us to temporarily take away one's right to gun ownership. Gerwig responded saying, we're not against stopping somebody that is in fact dangerous to others. He said he could see the law being abused by upset spouses and ex-boyfriends and girlfriends. Linking strict gun laws to low gun death rates is an easy premise, Gerwig said. He pointed to reports frequently cited by the National Rifle Association that say more guns actually reduce crime. Many of those reports are contested by other researchers, though. Gerwig said Hawaii's cultural difference, the aloha spirit, should be considered in accounting for the state's low rate of gun deaths. Do we have a gun crime every now and then? He said, yeah, we do. But we don't have the level of violent crime that we're seeing in large cities. Rhodes, the state senator who supported the extreme risk protection law, 
agreed that Hawaii benefits from a cultural difference. We don't grab for a gun if we're mad at somebody, he said. The debate surrounding gun laws often devolves into an argument about good guys with guns versus bad guys, Rhodes said. But that's all nonsense. Even with the measures already placed in Hawaii, there are still a lot of guns out there. And minimizing gun violence boils down to having the right attitude and the right protection laws. And it also helps to be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, he said, with no neighbors to exert a bad influence. For instance, California has an A rating from the Giffords Law Center, but borders Nevada and Arizona, which are rated D and F, respectively. There are not really any simple solutions, but there are certain things that stack the deck in your favor, Rhodes said. And we have them. Clifford Gu, another president of the Hawaii Rifle Association, thinks the laws passed in the recent years are an overreaction to shootings in the mainland rather than the reality in Hawaii. I kind of think they're an undue burden. Every time they make a new law, they never take into consideration the say of the responsible gun owner, he stated. Gu says that he does support Hawaii's gun safety education requirements and some mental health checks, but broadly feels that gun owners are often demonized by elected officials. In the case of the Xerox shooting, mental health is of a particular interest. At the time of the shooting, Hawaii already had mental health controls for gun purchases, but only at the time of sale. Senator Rhodes said some kind of recurring checkup may be worthwhile. People's states of mind change over time, and I think there's something to be said for having a system where you check to see whether or not the person still qualifies for the weapon. Rhodes said he thinks Hawaii's current gun laws are by and large sufficient, in need of only some tweaks regarding high-caliber firearms and magazine capacity for rifles. The Hawaii Rifle Association said it wants to work with lawmakers to change some state rules, including the red flag law, which it views as unfair. But it is difficult to remember the Xerox murders, and powerfully tempting to want to forget them. There is value in summoning the courage to face even the most horrific acts. It's an innately human virtue to use tragedy as a tool to understand why such terrible things happen, and to learn how to stop them from happening as much as we possibly can. And that is the case of the Xerox murders. Um, I wanted to close with a poem written by one of the co-workers at Xerox. This is by Catherine Baroga of IAEA. Another workday at the office. Suddenly, I remember there is something that I will definitely miss. It's your smile, Peter, Ron, Ford, and John, along with your pleasant personalities and greetings that are gone. My thoughts and prayers go out to your families, whom I am sure share many loving and fond, happy memories with all of you who had touched our lives, who left behind beautiful children and wonderful wives. Please guide co-workers, friends, and myself to be strong while the road to healing is rough and long. For the emptiness and pain is nothing but immense 
all for something that does not make any sense. I break down and cry and still wonder why. Every time another service repairman comes walking by. Aloha. I will miss you all. Now, I'm not normally a poem person, but that poem just spoke to me when I was researching this and I couldn't not include it. Um, Just the effect of that whole story and then the poem just really brought it all together for me. But I really hope that you enjoyed learning about this and um, listening to me. Hopefully you'll stay tuned. Thanks for, for listening week. to Coastal Crimes. Check out my website and blog at coastalcrimespod.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Coastal Crimes Pod. If you have questions or recommendations to share, email me at coastalcrimespod at gmail.com. Episodes are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support and get a shout out on air, please visit my Patreon page to keep this show going.